Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast. Episode 91, The Mighty Bulls, in which Egypt's new king comes roaring out of the gate at a frantic pace. Projects, plans, and power are his, and in just the first 12 months, there is a surprising amount of activity to talk about. Today's episode is brought to you by Ina Jordans, who sponsored the whole episode on her own, and then some. Ina Thank you for your generosity. May Neith and Nephthys, goddesses of the hunt, defend you on your travels. The year was 1399 BCE, approximately January. It was technically regnal year 2 of Amunhotep III, but the first regnal year had been just a few months long lasting from the king's appearance on the throne in May, down to his formal coronation at the new year, in late August of 1400. Once the new year started, the Egyptian civil calendar counted the king as having entered regnal year 2. It's a small quirk of the Egyptian system, where pharaohs would frequently have a short first year. Anyway, January 1399. It was the second month of Peret, the planting season, and the land was cool, in the mid-twenties Celsius. In the fields, the lower classes were hard at work sowing seeds and arranging the year ahead. Life was busy and industrious. Farmers working near the riverbank, which, given the narrowness of the floodplain, was most of them, might have looked up one day to see a magnificent sight, Gliding past, an enormous ship with brightly coloured sails and ornate decoration dominated the river. The royal barge of the king was sailing downstream. The pharaoh was on a journey. Just a few months after he took power, Amunhotep III and his government were already hard at work establishing their various projects. From construction and renovations of temples, to an elaborate hunting trip, the first 12 months of Amunhotep's reign were a flurry of activity. Today, we explore these fascinating little endeavours, which have survived in remarkable detail. The farmers and field hands watched as the grand, ornate boat sailed past. This was the royal barge which carried the king and his mother on their journey northward. The reign and policies of the regime were now beginning in earnest. The royal barge was named Chai M. Ma'at. This was derived from one of the king's five royal names, specifically his Horus name. Chai M. Ma'at simply means appearing in Ma'at, and reflected the king's overarching agenda to renew order, strengthen law, and undertake the rituals which a king was meant to do. For the boat, a name like Chai M. Ma'at was appropriate, 
To establish order, the king needed to travel the land. His royal barge helped him accomplish that. Amunhotep sailed north in great style. Relaxing in his boat cabin, he and his mother enjoyed fruits, meats, bread, beer, and wine. Servants fanned them, and musicians entertained them. The voyage was pleasant and leisurely. Time seemed to slip into the background. Soon, the first of Amunhotep's main destinations was reached. This was a small town in Middle Egypt called Hemenu. Hemenu is more commonly known as Hermopolis. It was a town dominated by Thoth, the Lord of Wisdom and the Master of Scribes. It was Thoth whom Amunhotep came to visit. Any king worth his salt recognised the value of Thoth. He was the sage of the gods and the dispenser of all learning and wisdom. Thoth, who could appear either as an ibis bird or a baboon, could empower the new king with his knowledge and foresight. With the right offerings, Amunhotep could seek Thoth's counsel and ensure that the god was at his side in the many years of decision-making that were to come. This was the purpose of the king's visit. Amunhotep and his mother stepped off the boat at Chemenu and visited the sanctuary of Thoth. This temple was small and now a good 500 years old. It had been constructed in the reign of Amenemhat II, whom we met all the way back in episodes 38 and 39. That king had commissioned works in limestone, including a grand gateway, which still partly survives today. Visiting this temple, Amunhotep III felt that he too should make a contribution. To honour Thoth, Amunhotep commissioned two large statues. These statues took the form of seated baboons. Now baboons were one of Thoth's emblems, and these statues are wonderful examples indeed. They are colossal in size, the tallest being four and a half metres high. They crouch or squat with their paws resting on their knees. They bear a calm gaze, like silent sentinels guarding the entrance to Thoth's holy sanctuary. These baboons remain on the site today, guarding the open-air museum of the town's sacred remains. As always, photos on the website. In addition to these two grand statues, Amunhotep also donated a new altar. The altar was made of alabaster, a milky white stone of fantastic smoothness and beauty. For the great god and the priesthood, such an offering was handsome indeed. It renewed the lustre of the temple, which by now was probably a little bit run down, and it gave the priests a more stylish tool for offerings to their lord. The altar, again, survives to this day. The rest of Amunhotep's contributions to Thoth are unknown. The temple as a whole is almost entirely gone, even the buildings of much later eras are just rubble. So unfortunately, the scale of Amunhotep's devotion to Thoth is still a mystery. Perhaps he was a devout worshipper, perhaps he merely gave what was expected. Either way, the contributions which survive are beautiful, and they speak of the king's care towards the cult of the Lord of Wisdom. The work at Chemenu was complete. Amunhotep and his mother now reboarded their barge and set off down the Nile. Next stop, Memphis, the greatest city in the land. But before we go any further, I feel we should meet the person who was directing all these projects. This wasn't the king. Amunhotep was just 12 years old at the time, remember. 
and chances are he wasn't leading the decision-making process. So before we continue on our Nile cruise, we should take a look at Amunhotep's mother, the woman responsible for his power. Let us reintroduce the great mother of the king, Mut M. Weir. Mut M. Weir was probably about 30 years old. We don't know exactly how old because her mummy is unknown, and in the reign of her late husband, she was something of a non-entity. No records, no mentions. So all we have to go on is what we get in the reign of Amunhotep, and then work backwards from there. With that in mind, here's what we do know. Mut M. Weir's rise began as a consort and lesser wife of the IV, But once he died and her son became king, she found her star moving from the distant background to the very forefront of Egyptian politics. With her child now the Horus incarnate, Mut M. Weir entered the limelight and began a journey into splendid immortality. It is fitting that a lady named Mut M. Weir became powerful on the grounds of her maternal accomplishments. The word Mut means mother, and is a reference to the goddess Mut, the wife of Amun, and the mother of Khonsu. Mut, the goddess, was the embodiment of motherhood as a concept. So, Mut M. Weir was named after a mother goddess, and then became a mother to a god on earth. If you were looking for divine providence, you couldn't get more literal than that. It was practically written in the stars. Mut Emweer is very well attested in her son's reign. There are statues of her in many temples, like Karnak and Luxor, and she even shows up in the private tombs. Images like these give us a good scope of her public persona. Among the many references to her, Mut Emweer is praised as the Hemet Nesut Weret Mut Nesut, or Great Royal Wife, Mother of the King. Other titles include Nebet Tawi, Lady of the Two Lands, Chemet Netcher, God's Wife, or Priestess, Weret Hesiut, Great of Praises, and Chenut Sechemu Mehu, Mistress of Upper and Lower Egypt. Quite the resume. Mostly honorific, of course, but at least a couple of these titles are worthy of our attention. As the great royal wife of the deceased Tutmose IV, Mut Emweer was the de facto queen of Egypt in 1399 BCE. This doesn't automatically mean that she was the regent for her son, but in the absence of any other candidate, it is most likely her that was calling the shots. Either she was acting directly in the name of her son, or she was telling Amunhotep what to say, while he matured into his role as the pharaoh. Now, This power was only going to last for a few years, until the boy became a man. But in these early days, the Chemet Nesut Weret Mut Emweer was well and truly in charge. As a Chemet Netjer, or God's wife, aka priestess, Mut Emweer was formally connected with the great cult centres of the land. She could officiate in rites when present, and oversee the needs of the great temples when at the palace. In royal houses and divine houses, Mut Emweer carried authority as a representative of great gods, most likely Hathor or Mut, or the various goddesses in whose name the royal family was propagated. I think we can assume that Mut Emweer was initiated into some very discreet and sacred practices. What I wouldn't give to be a fly on the wall at those particular ceremonies. (laughs) 
There is one very curious facet of Moot Amwea's religious life. Unlike many queens before her, she did not take up the title of Hemet Necher in Imen, aka God's Wife of Amun. The God's Wife of Amun might be called the High Priestess of the land at the time, certainly the most high-ranking priestess in the south. God's Wife of Amun was a powerful title, both for religious and political reasons, and yet Mut Emwia did not bear it. The last queen to rank as the God's Wife of Amun had been Queen Tia, mother of Tutmose IV. Tia was dead now, so the position was theoretically open to take, but Mut Emwia did not take it up, and it would actually be another century before another queen used this title. So Queen Tia was the last queen of Dynasty 18 to rank as the God's Wife of Amun. Mut Emwia broke the chain of succession and so changed the path of future history. Her reasons for doing this are unclear. Perhaps the option was never even floated. Mut Emwia has no discernible ancestry of any note. Perhaps it was felt that her lineage was insufficient to take the title. That one's a little bit hard to follow, because after all, Mut Emwia was the divine mother of the king. Theoretically, there was no woman more eligible for the role. We have to assume that, for some unknown reason, Mut Emwia decided not to take up this title. Whatever her logic was, it was a momentous decision. For the next century, the Temple of Karnak and its priesthood became slightly more independent from the crown than it had been before. Not totally autonomous, of course, just a bit less direct oversight. We're not sure why this change occurred. Perhaps political trends were creating a shift in royal and cult relationships. Maybe it was just a natural ebbing of control over time. Whatever the reason, Mut Emwia's decision to not act as the god's wife of Amun marks a very distinct turning point in royal history. For the next hundred years, the crown would be less actively controlling of Karnak Temple and its priests. Would this have consequences? Well, that remains to be seen. Moving away from Moot Emwia's politics, it's worth taking a quick look at her artistic images, just because some of them are really lovely. In a tomb west of Thebes, a wonderful painting depicts the coronation of King Amunhotep III. It's mostly pretty formal. Courtiers line up, in particular the tomb owner, to give the new pharaoh their praise. Amunhotep himself sits on a throne beneath an ornate canopy, kind of a tent or kiosk set up in a courtyard. In the shade of this pavilion, he receives the praise and obedience of his subjects. Behind him, Mut Emwia stands proudly as the Mut Nesut, king's mother. She is, in a symbolic sense, the goddess Mut, protecting the king as he receives the adulation of the world. It's a beautiful scene, and quite a famous one when it comes to Amunhotep III. As always, check out the website to see it in detail. That tomb painting is my favourite piece, but arguably the most beautiful art of the queen comes from Karnak Temple. A black stone statue, now housed in the British Museum, portrays the queen in a way that we have rarely seen before. 
This statue shows Mut M. Weir seated on a throne, riding in a small boat. The prow is decorated with a head of Hathor, the other mother goddess, and it is inscribed with the cartouches of Amunhotep III. It is a gorgeous piece of work, but the reason we find it so fascinating is that this statue is what is called a rebus. A rebus is an image that in three dimensions conveys words. In this case, the statue of the queen in a boat is a rebus of the name Mut M. Weir, aka Mut in her boat. It's not just a statue then, it's a pun, the sort of wordplay and creativity that the Egyptians were very fond of. We're going to see statues like this crop up more and more as the New Kingdom progresses. They became quite popular among certain pharaohs. Anyway, this statue is gorgeous. Once again, visit the website for images. The statue showing Mut Emweer as Mut in her boat displays more of a ceremonial attitude. Since it was found at Karnak, we have to assume that it was part of a royal donation to the temple, part decoration, part symbol of the relationship between crown and cult, and part favour in order to obtain Mut and Amun's blessings for the queen herself. We can't read that much political out of the statue per se, but it's a beautiful piece and a wonderful record of royal donations to the major cults. This is going to be a really prominent part of Amunhotep's reign, and it's worth keeping statues like this in your mind as we continue down the road. There is a third piece of important artwork relating to the queen, one that I covered in the last episode. On the walls of Luxor Temple, or Ipet Sut, the southern harem, an elaborate set of artistic pieces display the birth story of Amunhotep III. The tale of how Amun, in his earthly form, impregnated Mut Emwia and conceived the future king. The birthing tale takes the form of a spectacular set of narrative images. Even if it is fragmentary today, the scenes are still gorgeous. As you can imagine, Mut Emwia is at the very centre of this tale, the vessel through which divine will could manifest in the world. Once again, it tells us a few hints about Mut Emwia's place in the hierarchy of the day. On top of that, it's just beautiful art. Putting all these images together, we can think of Mut Emwia as being a powerful but circumspect influence on the young king. The queen always presented herself as secondary, supporting her son in his rule. She was no usurper. Her influence was more of a guiding light kind of force than any sense of direct rule or regency. Of course, her real life power was probably very great, especially in these first few years of her son's rule. But the boy was 12, and within a few years he would reach his physical maturity. So Mut Emwia's power, no matter how great, had a natural time limit. As the young king grew older, he would gradually flex more and more of his intellectual muscle. Mutemwia limited herself to guiding that development, rather than trying to overshadow it. This was a smart move, which ensured the longevity of her name, and the utmost honour as a royal mother for many decades to come.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In 1399 BCE, the pharaoh Amunhotep III and his mother, Mut Emwia, were sailing north down the Nile River. They had left Thebes and visited the sanctuaries of great gods, making donations to the cults along the way. Now, their ship of state was approaching the region of the greatest city in the land, the city of Memphis. Along the way, Amunhotep, Mut Emwia, and their courtiers were putting the finishing touches on various building projects that they would put into practice over the next few years. Now, these building projects would eventually cover the length and breadth of Egypt and Nubia too, and they would consume the work of thousands of people over the entirety of Amunhotep's reign. That kind of ambition needed a solid foundation. So, in the first 12 months of his reign, Amunhotep III was beginning the process of funding these projects. How did he do so? Well, he went about opening up the country's quarries. Amunhotep III is extremely well attested in Egypt's various mines and stone quarries. Texts and inscriptions in many of the major sites testify to work groups coming here very early in his reign. They were there to begin the process of extracting all the stone that would be needed over decades of work. Archaeological surveys in these quarries suggest that most of this labour was carried out in vast quantities, and the mines of the south and north produced stone for monuments all over the land. As you can imagine, this would have required huge numbers of personnel, especially during the flood season when farmers were not working. So, Early in the first 12 months, perhaps even in that short first year as the flood was beginning, Amunhotep's officials were starting their projects in the stone quarries. East of the city of Memphis, one of the world's great limestone sources lay quiet. This was the quarry called Tura, a monumental area that had furnished high-quality limestone for the Great Pyramids and countless temples of the Middle Kingdom. By 1400, Tura was silent and empty, as the major projects had moved away to other regions and the demand for limestone had been replaced by materials like granite or sandstone. Well, Amunhotep was going to change that, and he reopened the quarry of Tura. Naturally, he put up a stela to commemorate the event. Quote, his Majesty commanded the quarry chambers to be opened anew, in order to hew fine limestone of Tura to build his houses of millions of years, aka the temples. He did this after His Majesty found the quarry chambers falling into ruin since the times that were before. It was His Majesty that made them anew, so that he might be given life, stability, dominion, and health, like the great god Ray, forever. End quote. Naturally, Amunhotep makes it sound very grandiose, but the reality was probably more mundane and more unpleasant. Quarrying is not glamorous work, it is hot, dusty, and punishing, 
So thousands of men were given chisels and mallets and sent to work in stifling canyons, where grit and dust would infect their lungs and drive them to exhaustion. But hey, gotta build those temples, right? Unfortunately, not that much is known of the quarrying at Tura, because since the 1940s, the region has been used by the Egyptian military for storage depots. This means the whole area is incredibly restricted, and archaeological surveys have only been given the tiniest concessions in order to work in small areas. As you can imagine, we don't understand Tura all that well just yet. And until the Egyptian military decides to relocate or move on to bigger facilities, it's likely to continue that way. But hey, who knows what the future holds? Perhaps one day, teams can investigate the valley properly and begin to learn all about quarrying in this greatest of ancient sources. Amunhotep spent several months at Memphis, aka Men-Nefer, the beautiful foundation. Perhaps living in the central city, or in a palace on the outskirts, he introduced himself to the populace as the pharaoh, and began making offerings at the city's temples. One sanctuary in particular received his close attention, the Temple of Ptah, Lord of Craftsmen and the patron god of Memphis. Amunhotep, or rather his mother and advisors, used the appearance of the pharaoh as an opportunity to make a donation to Ptah's cult. Here, in the city of Memphis, a new shrine would be constructed in Amunhotep's name. This shrine to Ptah was called Neb Ma'at Re Seshem Ptah, aka Neb Ma'at Re, Amunhotep, is united with Ptah. This would be the nucleus of Amunhotep's great contributions to Ptah's cult. Because ancient Memphis is beneath the city of Cairo, not much is known of the great temples which once flourished here. Chances are the work done at Ptah's temple would be made, in part, by that fine quality limestone which was even now being quarried at Tura. Tura limestone is notable for its strength, a durability that allowed artists to carve delicate glyphs and images onto the surface. This made it perfect for the more illustrious monuments. And what got more illustrious than the temple of Ptah? I think we can bet that as the king made his wishes known, the architects were already doing the maths on how much stone to requisition from that quarry. Over the next few decades, the Tura quarry was going to produce some serious work for the capital. We can reasonably assume that the greatest beneficiary of this work was the temple and cult of Ptah. The contributions to Memphis marked the crown jewel of work done in the first 12 months of Amunhotep's reign. But monuments and temples aside, the king spent his time at Memphis in a most interesting manner. You see, early in year two, he decided to perform an important rite of passage. The king took his chariot out into the desert in order to go hunting. Around February to March of 1399 BCE, Amunhotep III, just 13 years old, initiated his reign with a grand hunt in the region of Memphis. According to the records he left behind, this was a hunting of bulls which had gathered in the hinterlands just north of the city. The story goes that a herd of bulls, or perhaps many herds with their cows, were roaming around the area. The king and his entourage went in search of them for sport. This was recorded in writing, which describes the events of the hunt. Quote, Year two, under the majesty of Horus, the mighty bull appearing in truth, 
The two ladies who establishes laws, who pacifies the two lands. The Horus of gold, great of strength, who smites the Asiatics. The king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Neb Ma'at Re. The son of Re, Amunhotep, ruler of Thebes, given life. While at Memphis, someone came to tell his majesty, there are wild bulls on the hill country, in the district of Shetep. His majesty sailed north in his ship, called Appearing in Ma'at starting a good journey in the evening, and arriving safely at Shetep in the morning. Then, his majesty appeared on his chariot, while his complete expedition was behind him. The officials and the soldiers of the whole expedition in its entirety, and the children of the nursery, were instructed to watch over the wild bulls. Then, his majesty commanded that these bulls be driven into a walled enclosure with a ditch. His majesty determined to attack these wild bulls, and he went at them with his weapons. The total number in the herds was 170 bulls. The number brought by his majesty from the hunt on just the first day was 56 bulls. Then he waited four days so that his horses could rest. On the fifth day, his majesty appeared in a chariot once again, and the number of the bulls brought by him from this hunt was 40 more. The total of the bulls killed by his majesty was 96. End quote. At the outset we should acknowledge that this was not a particularly fair hunt. It seems as though the herds were corralled into an enclosed area, making the chase and the killing much easier for the young king. Animal cruelty aside, Amunhotep's little expedition does seem quite incredible. For one thing, we have to ask what nearly 200 bulls, and he's quite specific that they were bulls, were doing in this area. In a modern domestic herd, you tend to have one bull for every 30 cows. Presumably, even a wild herd doesn't get much above 4 or 5 per 30. So either Amunhotep is wildly exaggerating, which is always likely, or he was conflating bulls and cows together. The point of this is that the bull hunt, quote-unquote, was a lot less impressive than he pretends. Now, to the ancients, this event was a very prestigious one. Amunhotep, just 13 years old, proved to all that he was a pharaoh of might and strength. By shooting bulls from his chariot, the king was displaying two essential traits. On the one hand, he showed the aggressiveness and warlike tendencies of a warrior. On the other, he also demonstrated a mastery over nature, one which defined the pharaoh's relationship to the world. Amunhotep, king of Egypt, was charged with keeping the natural world in order. By establishing dominance over the bulls, which were in part his namesake, he illustrated his worthiness to wear the crown, and to lead the Egyptian people. Obviously, today we look askance at this event, especially by its methods. But in the ancient world, this was both an acceptable ritual, and even a necessary one. It was, in effect, a rite of passage for the young and new pharaoh. Amunhotep passed that test with flying colours. Down the line in history, the practice of hunting bulls would transition to something a bit more benign. Later pharaohs proved their strength less by killing the bulls, but by subduing or lassoing them. That practice was some ways off, for now, hunting was still the main method. That being said, Amunhotep III did not make bull hunting a regular pastime. 
In fact, the written record suggests that the hunt in year two was the only one of its kind that he undertook. After year two, the king switched his hunting expeditions to a different and far more dangerous opponent. So the bull hunt may be an anomaly. Perhaps it was a specific event or a ritual of which we've lost the general trend. Either way, it does seem to have been a one-off. What's more, Amunhotep soon adopted an altogether different approach to bulls. In fact, he eventually changed his attitude so much that he wound up establishing one of the most enduring animal cults in Egyptian history. That is a story for another day. Suffice to say, the reign of Amunhotep III is going to be quite noteworthy for its treatment of bulls. The record of Amunhotep III's first 12 months on the throne is an interesting start for a young king. He was surprisingly active right out of the gate with at least three major projects in the first few months. Some of these projects, like renewing the quarries, suggest that from the get-go, Amunhotep and his government were planning for the long term. The future held big things, and the king's regime began to prepare themselves for monuments and construction works that would consume massive resources. On top of that, works like the donations to Thoth and Batar suggest that the king was putting in the groundwork for a reign filled with good advice from Thoth and successful buildings from Batar. In short, Amunhotep and company were aiming high, and they were willing to put in the work to make those ambitions happen. As the planting season of year two wound down in March of 1399 BCE, Amunhotep was doing quite well. A strong start. With the guidance of his mother and the advice of his esteemed courtiers, the king was now set up for success. To his great luck, this would continue when, soon afterwards, he married his first wife, a wife that would accompany him to the very heights of pharaonic glory. Join me soon for episode 92, titled The Great Lady. It's time to meet the woman who would define royal power in Amunhotep's reign, none other than the mighty Queen Tyr. See you soon. Then, Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now, Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.